When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Local Report podcast in association with Vox Brewery. Today we've got a very special episode. We've got three guests today. First one is Tim O'Right, the Local Reporter that is Tom O'Brighton. How are you doing, Tom? You well? I'm doing fine. Fantastic. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, mate. Not too bad. Opposite me is Sunland Director Charlie Methven. You all right? Good evening. How are you going? Not bad. And then Paul Reed, not in my eye shot. How are you doing, Paul? Are you well? I'm good, thank you. Good. Right, we'll crack straight on. We'll fire straight into it. We're going to go with sort of questions in a book. Um, so we'll start off with the Academy. We've got a ready-to-go user here, Mr. Bump. So first question is for you, Paul. Do you have any direct involvement in recruiting, releasing players, scouting young players, or coaching? Are you effectively managing others? I think the best way to think of my role is more like a, a CEO of a, a small organisation within a bigger organisation. So the, the Academy director role itself has evolved. It's not a case of me being in a tracksuit and and coaching and picking up cones and and being out scouting possibly like it was in the past my role's far more about managing people i have a staff full time and part time of over 80 that'll include admin recruitment coaches analysis physios psychologists th- strength and conditioning coaches so that's a a huge amount of people to to actually manage on a day-to-day basis so uh, that, that's more my role. I'm, I'm more office-based and thinking more strategically rather than actually delivering out on the grass. Good question from, uh, is, I think it's Suka, no, or, or Seeker, an SIE. We've got it wrote here. I'm going to assume it's a typo from Gab. Sai, could be Sai. The question that Curtin will say has asked, are results at under 23 and under 18 level or even younger important or is it more about game experience and how they're being brought through as individuals? Again, another another great question. I would say that winning is important. I think winning is part of development. I think that academy players themselves, because of the delivery of the academy programme in general, that winning has became diluted a little bit. I think there is too much of a, a focus on development. I think there's got to be a, a balance of development and winning. Uh, I think in terms of the, the coaches and the academy staff, I think development's our focus. I think that, for example, if we had a, a very strong under-14 player and he was excelling within his age group, I think it's it's right for us to maybe push him up an age group, even though that will possibly devalue the under-14s. That's, that's, that means that winning's not our uh, prime objective. But once the players are out on the pitch, the players' focus should be winning. So the coaches should be more focused on the development and that the players actually concentrate more on the winning football matches. 
Yeah, no, I actually 100% agree with that completely. Yeah, I yeah. think productivity has got to be the, the main focus. And I, I don't want to uh, talk about the results. Obviously, everybody sees the 18 results and the 23 results because they're published. I think mm. what doesn't probably get publicised enough is the results amongst the other age groups over the last 18 months. The under-13s national champions, under-14s national champions, the under-10s winning uh, a tournament with 126 teams in it, including Juventus and Southampton. We get a great deal of success yeah. uh, at under-16 mm-hmm. level and below when we face obvious challenges that I'm sure we'll discuss later regarding the 18s and 23s, yeah. but we're not. Tr- I'm greedy. I, I want to win and produce players, but that, that productivity and getting players into the first team, that, that's what we're yeah. about. I think that... Um, we're not we're not trying to create a great team. We're, we're trying to create players good enough to play in the first team. So yeah. I'd rather have, say, within the 23s, one player that's a 9 out of 10 that's really high potential and the rest less so, like 3 out of 10, rather than all sixes and be consistent and win games at under-23 yeah. level because ultimately I'm not going to get that player into the first team. I think the underlying question here, and it's you know I've, I've seen it plenty being asked around by, by the, the fan base in particular, around the local media, is around the results at under-18 and under-23 level. Yeah. And now as Paul's mentioned, um, it, in two age groups this year, we're the national champions. and In the one above that, we, were, we came second. Yeah. So at age groups under-under-16, you would argue Sunderland is the dominant academy in the whole of the country. And that is just, it's, that's just fantastic when you think about it. No other club could get close to us in age groups under the 18 age group. Now, what happens after the under-16s? Well, what happens under the under, after the under-16s is that the very biggest clubs, who are actually our competition, and we'll come on to how that works in a moment, um, they're then able to start paying transfer fees for, for players and bringing players in from all over the world. So maybe at under-15 level, when our under-15s go and pump Man City 4-1 or something like that, they're playing against Man City's local lads. The under-18s are not playing against Man City's local lads. They're playing against an all-star select team from all around the world. And that's a very, very different thing. Now, um, once you understand that, then you start to look at our under-18s in particular in a slightly different way, which is in those games where they are competitive, and it is happening, they are getting pretty competitive now, you think, well, actually, do you know what? That's a really good sign. Because if that group of local Sunderland lads is being competitive against one of the big international all-star teams, then that probably means that a couple of those lads are going to be good enough to compete at that level, which then goes into what Paul's saying, which is the actual production of the elite-level players. Now, if we take it a stage further to the under-23s, the situation becomes even more extreme. At that age group level, the Premier League teams who we're competing against, given our Cup Cat 1 status, are probably looking at squads under 23 squads of 25, 30 young professionals who, again, are brought in from all over the world. And meanwhile, what we're looking at is those who we selected from the under-18 team who we think might have a professional future and a few waifs and strays, odds and sods who've come into the club a little bit later or from other other academies where they've fallen out of other academies. But there are times when, to put an under-23 team on the pitch, we're having to select under-18s to bolster the ranks of the under-23s. Yeah. Now, the under-23s are one of the very the big clubs who we're competing against. To get in the under-23 team, you have to be doing really well. There are talented players who aren't able to get in the under-23 teams at, the, at these clubs. So that's just a recognition of reality. And again, once you understand it, then it's not alarming, it's not difficult to get your head around, and it's absolutely fine. The second decision that was made um, on the recommendation of Paul and the first team management to 
the board was that we would start sending out our better under 23 players on loan to League Two and conference clubs to get yeah. them experience of adult of an adult football environment as as young an age as possible. Because the, the professional view from Paul and from the other people involved and from Kevin Ball as well was that actually this was what was more likely to increase that productivity that Paul was speaking about earlier on. Now, again, if you were very results focused and you're concerned that your under-23s were getting beat 3-0, you'd say, well, if we pulled Denver Hume back into the under-23s, pull Lyndon Gooch back into the under-23s, pull Jack Darman back, back off loan, pull Ethan Robson back off loan, get Elliot Emmelton back into the 23s, I'll tell you what, we'd have a really competitive under-23 team. The question is, is, would that be helping towards our goal of producing really good footballers? And the professional advice from Paul and others was... There's a balance here. They do need to go out and learn and get some game time. So I think once all these things are taken in context and you look at the overall performance of the academy, as a board, we are terrifically enthused. We think we're in a great place. So when I see and catch sort of bits of criticism out there, really you sort of feel almost a bit frustrated because you're like, crikey, if only people knew how good our academy is and how well it's going, they'd feel excited by it, not, not downbeat about it. Because in as much as we are suffering some struggles in results terms at 18 and 23 level... It was entirely expected and predicted. In fact, in some ways, it's going a little bit better than we thought it might do. I say that from a board perspective to give you a view that this was all deliberate. This is not um, some sort of sudden calamity that we're losing a few games under 23 level. This was a deliberate result of certain decisions that were made and the environment that we are performing in. And the environment we're performing in is where our competition are Premier League clubs who are receiving £130 million a year in TV revenue. So for them... Yeah. To invest three, four, five, six, seven million pounds in youth team players, transfer fees, big wages, etc., is a drop in the ocean. Of course, without those TV revenues and our twenty million pound a year in total revenues, it's an awful lot more challenging. And that is the challenge that Paul Reed has. Paul Reed has a challenge of running a Category One academy that is competitive with the Premier League academies in a league where the, the club's total revenues cannot enable him to go and do the things that all the other Cat One academies do. It's a challenge, and I think he's doing great at it. Yeah. Well, we're still producing players. I mean, you listed a few off there. I mean, you know, as a fan, you do see a result, and sometimes it is the result is the only thing you notice. But when it's kind of explained in that way, to be fair to both of you, that, that makes complete sense. Especially like, when you take into account certain things. So, like, we mentioned it when the, I know the first team played Leicester under-23s. Leicester under-23s were fielding a Welsh international and a £30 million, million centre-half. Centre so, <laughs> we, you know, I think a lot of fans can understand, as a League One club, we have not got £13 million to spend on a centre-back for your under-23s, whether yeah. he's going to go into the first team or not. We just don't have that kind of money. I don't think it's realistic to expect the under-23s to compete at that level when you can see that these other academies are operating on a, even a financial level way, way above ours. So I think, like you say, the idea of getting players out and getting them professional experience at the detriment of result going further forward is actually going to be of benefit to us because it gives us more chance of creating professional football as a benefit to Sunderland. And if they, those players were to go on and outgrow Sunderland in terms of ability, i.e. Pickfords and Hendersons, that kind of thing, then we're going to command a decent fee for those players. And in the current market where British talent is probably some of the most expensive going, is that puts a club in a really good position where you know we may come up across two or three players where in three or four seasons time we're looking at selling them for 20, 25, 30 million pounds which would be you know yeah. even even at Premier League level would be good money to receive for a, a, a homegrown player as it were. 
talking about sort of talented players, there is a, a question here, and I think it's concerned a few from SFC underscore Jack. He says, we've lost a lot of seemingly talented young players. What has been done to prevent their departures or was it simply an inability to keep them? Yeah, so that inability to keep them is probably the main point there. This this is not something that we're kind of floundering around and, and not being able to, to keep the players. It's not a, a unique problem. Um, I listened to a podcast the other day with Les Ferdinand who previously been interviewed for the technical director role at the FA, so really highly thought of. And he's talking about his experiences at QPR and, and exactly the same thing. It, He's really struggling to keep his young talent when, where, where he is, uh, a lot of the big London clubs around him uh, are looking at his talent and, and trying to entice them to their football club. So in terms of trying to keep our young players, I think what we try and do is try and showcase our USP, which is a real pathway to the first team. I think that can be different at some of the bigger clubs. The, the players to us are, are genuinely special. We, we care about them as people and, and players as well. So the answer to that would be we tried everything we could. Obviously, you see the people that uh, and the young players that have left the football club. You don't see the people that we've convinced to stay. There's an awful lot of talent within our academy, as you can see from some of the results further down, 16s to 9s. We have some real talent in our academy, clubs circling all around them, and we've convinced them to stay. But the, the things that make the headlines are the, are the, are the couple that leave. Yeah, and, and I think that there's... For- couple of things first of all there's a the employment law that says that we cannot offer them professional contract until they're 17 17 right so up until that point they are free to go and play football wherever they want assuming that the the other club wants them that is so if you've got a kid who's playing England under 16s and he's away playing with the England under 16s and he's speaking to his mates in that team who are playing at Liverpool and Arsenal and Man City and these types of places and they then go back to their coach and say hey there's this lad from Sunderland who's on my team who I think is really really good we should have a look at him oh don't worry we've already had a look at him I'll tell you what why don't you suggest to him that he gives us a shout there is absolutely nothing we can do about that entire situation whatsoever the only way we can stop that is by that lad and his parents wanting to stay with Sunderland there is nothing we can't offer them for sale because they aren't ours to sell we can't stop them from going because they're not employees of the club. The only thing we can do is create an environment that they say, I want to stay in that environment. So that's the first issue. The second issue is for the very elite ones. And, and we're talking about the lads who have gone are ultra elite. With you know, These are England players. These are yeah. the age group England players. If they and their families perceive that they are going to be Premier League players, at some point they're going to need to get themselves to a Premier League club. Now, we might argue that the best way to do that would be to come and play in our first team, get your transfer to a championship club, play in the championship, go in the Premier League that way. But there's an equally valid argument that says, do you know what, actually, the best way to do this is actually go to a Premier League club. If you go to a Premier League club and you are good enough to play for England, you're going to get your chance at that Premier League club, or at the worst, they're going to put you out on loan to a top-end championship club, you know, whatever it might be. So there are arguments in both directions. But if the parents decide, actually, do you know what, my lad's been offered his big chance at Arsenal. Now, that happened last summer. Yep. That lad went to Arsenal. He's gone and played really well for Arsenal. And we then see in the papers in the summer that Juventus are circling him. Yeah. Right. So a lot of our supporters get very frustrated by that. Mm-hmm. I can tell you someone who gets more frustrated than that is our chairman. Because if that lad had stayed with us for one more year, 
then it would have been Juventus knocking on our door, not not knocking on Arsenal's door. Yeah. So the idea that as a board we want these lads to leave is, well, it's defamatory and it's also absolute hogwash. It is 100% hogwash. Economically, it's a total disaster. Because if you think about it, these lads have come into the academy when they're eight, nine, yeah. Paul, yeah. right? So we've then developed them. All the staff that Paul's talking about, the 80 staff who work underneath Paul, have developed those lads from eight or nine through to 15 when they're within touching distance of becoming full professional footballers. And our reward for that is 300 grand or something like that. Believe me when I say that when we receive that 300 grand, it is not a happy moment. It's a really, really shitty moment because you only would need one of those players to come good big time. And it's not 300 grand, it's 10, 15 million pounds. So financially, it really doesn't work. And it's a discussion that I'm having at EFL level in regards to what I believe to be unfair compensation levels where they haven't caught up with the reality of the transfer market. They're still levels that have been set some time ago. And meanwhile, the transfer market keeps on exploding, which means that effectively it's an easy arbitrage for the Premier League clubs to say, well, we're just going to buy a whole load of these. And even if only two of them make it, we'll make an absolute you know, load of money on them by sending them on to, to some other club because yes. you know, because of the sums involved. So it, it's a challenging environment. It's a tough environment. But that's the reality of running and deciding to run a Category 1 academy in a League 1 club. And when I said earlier on, that's a big challenge that we've set Paul. It's a big challenge for us as a club, and I include the fans in that. This club has decided, and I think that the decision had the support of the fans, to maintain a Category 1 academy. But let's be realistic about what the cost of that is. Yeah. The cost of that to the club is around two to two and a half million pounds cash a year. And then we get a contribution from the EPPP in match funding. If we were to go down to a Cat 2 or a Cat 3 academy, we'd pay a million pounds less a year, right? We'd still have an academy. We'd still have a youth system. We'd still have an academy manager. We would still produce footballers. But we would be a Category 2 or a Category 3 academy with many fewer staff, a lower level of coaching, probably some of the facilities we could get closed down, which were expensive to run, etc., etc., we have made the decision that we want to stay a Category 1 academy because we believe that for the future of Sunderland, that's the right place to be. But in terms of where we are right now, it's a challenge because our players are getting a platform to perform on which exposes them to the top-level clubs who want them. And then we're losing them for some money which doesn't really compensate us for the cost of running a Cat 1 academy, which is very, very considerable. So it's a challenge, but it's a challenge which, as a board, we think that overall we are, we're comfortable with... with with where this is going at academy level. We're comfortable with the quality of player coming through uh, and we're comfortable with the gradual and improved sort of quality of staff that we're seeing coming into the academy. And as we now start to put money into the recruitment side, that will then enable Paul and his staff to augment the local lads with a few more from elsewhere, which will then help us to compete a little bit more at those older age groups. Yeah. Another one for you as well, Paul. What are the objectives for our academy, ready to go user 1879 asked. I think there'll be one for board level, really. The key yeah. objectives feel free to come in, yep. Charlie. No um, problem. So, uh, w- one of our key objectives is to retain our category one status. Yeah. Um, it's not easy. The requirements keep on going up and up and up and up and up. And the reason for that is that the Premier League clubs can afford to keep on spending more and more and more money on it. Um, so, we want to we want to maintain our category one status. We're going to be audited again shortly. And yeah. I know that Paul's put in an absolutely huge amount of work into the massive levels of documentation and detail um he's crossing his fingers um <laughs> there off there um huge amount of detail that we have to get our head around as a as a board and, and paul as the guy running this to 
make sure that happens. And I think that the other metric that we look at as a board is what we said earlier on, productivity. It, is this entire system producing people who are going to be professional footballers? And, you know, the answer to that question at the moment is yes. Academies tend to ride slight peaks and troughs, and that goes for Manchester United as much as it does for us. You know, obviously Man U went for a period of five or six years when they were producing loads and loads of top international players. They then went through four or five years when they didn't produce really very much at all. So this is this is not just a sort of, you know, any one particular club. But nonetheless, Sunderland pretty consistently at the moment is producing professional level players. And obviously we keep a weather eye to ensure that's that's still the case. It's a good question as well, again, for you, Paul, just as one in the academy. Um, and maybe actually you could answer this as well, Charlie. Someone's asked a straightforward question. Um, what is Kevin Ball's role regarding young players in the academy at the moment? So, Bolly is our loans manager, as Charlie spoke about there. The development of our young players, the lo- the loan aspect of that is a, a huge part of it. We we feel that it's worth devaluing our 18s and 23s by sending these players out on loan. So, it's, he's, got, he's got a huge responsibility, Bolly, to create players capable of playing first-team football. They need that experience first. I think the under-23s serves a purpose to a certain degree, but people plateau at that level uh, and, and they need that first team environment to that, that transition between under 23s and first team level. It's too big of a uh, a bridge to, to gap there. So Ball is in charge of that. So Ballie would, with with the first with sorry the uh, academy staff identify the players that we would like to go out on loan. He would then build relationships with local and national clubs to identify which clubs maybe suit those particular players, and he would deal with the process from start to finish. So making sure from a, a welfare and safeguarding point of view that the the loan was correct and, and set up right for the player. Liaise with, and, and be that go-between really, between the loan club and, and ourselves uh, and really orchestrate that. He, he would then be on be, be that mentor figure for the, the young player out on loan and make sure that we are looking at that kind of high challenge, putting him out in a new environment. He's maybe first time away from home, but also that high support as well. The ball is there to to kind of bounce things off and, and make sure that they're actually happy and, and safe. Bolly would then be going out to watch those loan players, give give feedback to the, to the player and, and to us as a club to make sure that the loan experience was was a positive one. Then at the end of that loan, Bolly would lead a, a discussion again with the academy staff and also uh, potentially some of the first team staff to discuss that loan, some of the pros, cons, uh, some of the things we might learn from it and, and the next steps after that. The other part of Bolly's role is ambassadorial, which is more uh, helping Charlie. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the amount of work that Kevin does seen is well known in terms of representing the club at events um, and that type of stuff. There's a lot of unseen work in terms of, you know, visiting fans who have fallen on hard times and who are sick, representing the ownership at, you know, ceremonies and things quietly, which just need to be done in the right way by the club. You know, he's been a huge support to us, Stuart and I, since since we came to the club. And it is a slightly odd role, this dual role, where half his time is spent supporting the academy and half his time is spent supporting the board. But, you know, he fulfills both roles really well for us. I'll be quite open and honest. I was having a tough time the other week and he was one of the first people to pick up the phone. And he doesn't just look after, I think, people in the club and the, the young uh, academy players. 100%. He, he genuinely is Mr. Sunderland. He's a, and a fantastic bloke. And I wanted him to be recognised for that, I think. Yeah. When you talked about him looking after kids going away for the first time, I don't think there's anyone better yeah. placed than that. No, no, definitely not. But bringing it back to the sort of your idea of Bolly being in charge of loans and whatnot. So yeah. Is there an argument maybe that the club could be looking at the idea of maybe some feeder sides? We have a lot of very decent 
local lower league sides now, the likes of South Shields, you know, Gateshead and stuff. But has the club looked at that as an option? Would it, would a, a kind of a feeder club idea maybe suit some of the younger players? Because obviously being in League One, you know, four or five seasons ago, we may well have looked down into sort of League One, League Two to get these players' experiences. Do we now have to look slightly lower and like say look at the local clubs to keep the lads A close to home, B easier to watch and access? Is is there an argument for that or would you rather the players go away maybe further afield and sort well, of I think it's the, happening, isn't it, really? Hard way? Yeah. I mean we've we've had someone at Spenny Mill last year, we've got someone at South Shields now, uh we've had someone at Darlington. So we have had relationships with yeah. those local clubs. I think to say that we want kind of one feeder club, I think that limits us a little bit. I think yeah. that it's it's got it's got to be bespoke to that player as well, and it's yeah. also got to be right for the for the club itself in terms of the lo- the loan club as well. So it's okay me saying I've got a centre forward under twenty threes that I want out on loan. The might Darlington might not want a centre yeah. forward. Uh, Spenny might not want a centre forward. Yeah. So as much as I want to do it. The phone's got to ring. I've got to have somebody going, yeah, I want to take that player. He fits into what I want. And I'm going to play him. Because there's not much point us putting someone out on the loan if he's not going to play. Obviously, we've had a couple of players go to Grimsby recently. Embleton done really well there. I think Robson's pretty much hit the ground running there as well. When these clubs ring up, do you immediately know the style of football these clubs play, what they want to do and so on and so forth to make sure that when we're sending these players on loan, we're sending them on loan to develop a specific skill set or to develop within a system that would be specific to us further down the line. Yeah, completely. It's it's absolutely bespoke. We, we identify the players within our group that who we, we would like to go out on loan. That's what Bolly does, is build those relationships up with the clubs, both locally and nationally, to make sure that it fits together, that we're not sending a player out on loan that is going to a club that's absolutely not going to suit his attributes. So someone like Elliot Embleton, like you mentioned there, goes to Grimsby Grimsby basically played through him he was the kind of focal Mm -hmm. point for that team so it made absolute sense to go yeah they're they're seeing him as a real integral part of the team that makes absolute sense I think by his own admission he he would say that to start with he he struggled a little bit but he absolutely came through that and had a really successful loan and that was because we got it right in the first place that they absolutely wanted Elliot they absolutely wanted someone in that position and they were going to totally utilise him and not yeah. just see him as a as yeah. a filling um, an ad yeah yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely yeah. spot on and, and you start to develop relationships with clubs where there's trust at all levels so if you look at that loan and what that did it was obviously Borley who set it up but Elliot's going to come back into the club and he's going to speak to his fellow young professionals about the experience he had at Grimsby he's going to be positive about it yeah. we as a club have got to then know how Michael Jolly likes to play football and understand better that at a board level I had Several conversations with John Fenty, the Grimsby chairman, about how things are going, how you're looking after Elliot off the pitch, is everything okay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you start to to develop a respect through your organisations that we're delivering something for them in terms of an improved first team, and in return they're delivering us other stuff yeah. back. And once you know that that's what you're going to get from a club, then you might say, well, actually, if that worked for Elliot, it might work for another player as well. Yeah. But it won't be true for all of them. Regarding obviously the academy, there's there's loads of stuff that people have asked, and there's probably things that. Unfortunately, we haven't had time to cover, but there's other stuff we wanted to cover as well. And we wanted to keep this as, as short and informative mm. and concise as we can. So I wanted to move away from the academy a little bit and move into obviously something that we now can talk about, which was the investment. Yeah. Um, so I suppose most of these questions are going to go to you, Which John. is also really re- relevant to the academy as well. Yeah, well, yeah. very much so. First question I wanted to ask was regarding recruitment. It's been said that sort of money coming into the club 
will improve the recruitment structure. Can you go into detail about what changes will actually be made and what we hope the long-term benefits of improving our recruitment model will be? Um, I think that there will be more detail on this in the very, very near future. I think it's been noted in the local and fan media that a Scandinavian um, heads, you know, head scout's been been appointed full time. Yeah. There's also been a, a full time scout recruited in the Midlands, and I think further to that there'll be a, there'll be another full time appointment as well. And then below that, you've got a, a whole bunch of part time people reporting into those um, those heads. So in terms of a structure, it's something that Tony Coton's been working on with Richard Hill and the board for some time now, and. It's obviously relevant to the academy as well, because once you've got these regional heads, then you can start looking at, well, what kind of local scouts in those areas can report into those regional heads on academy recruitment as well, so that you actually start to build up a network of people who are being overseen and managed in the right way by people who are used to managing teams of scouts. Because as Paul said earlier on, it's not anymore just about a bloke and a sheepskin standing on a touchline. These things have to be structured, they have to be processes, they have to be durable. And we're trying to build something here that is of lasting um, significance to the club. And these things do take a little bit of time to bed in and to come to fruition. Getting the right the round pegs and the round holes, them then finding the right young player, for instance, who then comes into the academy, who then might take another two years before he then fulfills his potential. So the, that entire process might be three years from now, we end up with a player coming through in the first team and then you can date it back to, well, that all came from that investment that happened at that time. So we're fully aware that whilst there might be short-term benefits, the main benefit to the club is going to be in the medium to long term. There is a good question here from um, Scott934. Uh, he says, pretty straightforward question, but I suppose a valid one as well. He said, I'd like to know what is in it for FPP? The arrangements between FPP and Madrox, which is Stuart Donald and, and mine, Juan Sartori's holding company, are in, entirely private. They have no financial connection with Sunderland AFC, and that's the way it'll stay. In terms of their motivations, I always say to people, you know, if you want to find out what somebody's motivations are, ask them. Yeah. You know, ask them. And it's, up, it's then up to them whether they tell you the answer or not. It's up, not, not up for me to say. All I can say is that when I first sat in this studio 15, 16 months ago, 17 months ago, what we discussed was that the club had to be stripped back very, very hard. And I remember saying that at the time and it, it received very little attention when Stuart said it and I said it. But the amount of wastage at the club was was quite extraordinary. And I saw something online the other day which either infuriated me or or, or else kind of amused me. Someone said, oh, well, you know, the easy bit's cutting costs. No, it's not. Cutting costs is horrendous. It's really painful. Even the bits that are clear wastage still involve human beings, still involve HR processes, still involve complex paperwork and decision-making and all of its negative. It's not the fun stuff. You know, when Paul and I sit down and say, how are we going to apply this new investment to academy recruitment? That's fun. That's great. Sitting down and saying, how are we going to get more productivity out of 40% fewer staff? That's that's really tough and really, really challenging. So that first year was the stripping away of wastage that had built up over an awful long time. I mean, we're talking about a decade yeah. of fat building up. And when I say that, everyone's aware, I think, now that we were employing more than twice as many people as Newcastle United. I saw the numbers the other day. We were employing 30 people more than Tottenham Hotspur. Um, and this was in the champion When Sunderland was in the championship, they were employing more people than Tottenham Hotspur, finishing second in the Premier League. So there was an awful lot of work that had to be done because in your cutting with your scalpel, you have to be as careful as you possibly can be that you're cutting out the bits that can be cut out and you're not cutting out 
some of the essential organs. Um, and that's a really tough one. When you're going from several hundred staff to a much tighter number, that's a really difficult thing to achieve. Um, so, you know, here we are. We said at the start that ultimately we would want investment to come into the club to enable us to to compete at the next level. When I said that at the time, I didn't mean that after the club gets promoted to the championship, we then go out and look for investment. You need to have that before. You need to be ready. Um, if you wait that long, it's too late. Um, it means you can't compete when you eventually make that step. So some of the changes that have been put in place with this investment in terms of the academy, the infrastructure, which again, just as waste was building up in the club as a whole, there was woeful underspending going on on the infrastructure. So, you know, things like just the the machines at the swimming pool at the academy had all, you know, gone, as we're all aware that the speaker system at the Stadium of Lights, not all that great. There are a couple of lifts which have been out of repair for some time. Now, these all sound trivial, but you add them all together, it's actually quite a lot of work and quite a lot of money to put all these types of things right. So we've got a long list of things that need to be put right to get some of them infrastructurally back in fighting shape. We've got plans in terms of the, the recruitment side of things and the, you know, a, a few little appointments here or there, which we think will we think will really enable things to tick up a little at, at, at a little level. Just things like on my side of the club and the media side, you know, they've been battling on brilliantly, winning awards, etc. But with, you know, some bits of equipment that frankly have been gaffer taped over the last three years that the club hasn't really been in a great place. So just little bits here or there, just to enable us to take things back in a positive direction, having stripped it all back. That's what this investment was always going to be about. And it's, I said, it's great to be having those positive conversations again about how can we now improve things rather than how can we try and steady the, steady the ship and stop it, stop it sinking. Can the investment that we had help the common transfer window? Is there any plans for that? Would that benefit that as well? So with, with the forthcoming one? Uh, yeah, with, yes. with the January transfer yes, window. Yes. Look, we had a discussion, um, you know, the board had a discussion with the manager when he came in and, you know, we made it clear that we would support him in the January transfer window, this is before that investment was made. Mm-hmm. Really speaking, that was already that was going to happen anyway. That, okay. that, that wasn't that, this investment isn't about what we were going to be doing in January. Um, that was going to happen in any case. You mentioned someone's asked about stadium improvements, but I think you've kind of touched on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so so I I put those in two categories. One category is much needed capex repairs, and I've got a spreadsheet, and it's as long as my arm. Um, there's stuff that needs 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 to be done to get the Stadium of Light and the Academy of Light back to you know, sort of mint condition. And then the next bit is um, improvements to the fan experience. Um, and I'll be talking on that in more detail in the coming weeks once we've really bottomed out exactly what, what can and can't be done. But it includes, you know, I'm having conversations with the council and other stakeholders as well about all sorts of things, um, you know, broadband connect- connectivity, yeah. um, what we can do about the the fan zone experience um, during the winter months, what we can do about the F&B, the food and beverage uh, experience, you know, wh- wh- where's that going? How can we improve that? Um, beer pricing, there's all sorts of stuff that we're now able to move on to to improve things. You know, when you're looking in terms of improvements in and around the stadium, do you use your experience from other stadiums to gauge how we could do it? So, 100%, for instance, 100%, yeah. for instance, I've had a couple of trips to the Aviva for the rugby. I know drinking in the stand is a little bit different, but they're using automated systems where you can pre-order sort of pints and stuff for specific periods during the game. Queuing's been a huge issue at half-time. You see a lot of people leaving sort of 35, 40 minutes to go get their half-time pint. Is the scope, I know there's a lot of cost involved as well, is the scope in the future to be looking in things like this? So rather than Sunderland playing catch-up with other stadiums, that we then become sort of the forefront of you know the stadium experience, so sort of yeah. I think I think you know it. when they built the Aviva 
whenever it was, seven or eight years ago, and um, the Tottenham Stadium much more recently, yeah. it's natural that the new stadium is always at the forefront, right? Yeah. When the Stadium of Light was built, the Stadium of Light was at the forefront. Yeah. It's more of a challenge when you're an established stadium to keep yourself up with the pace when new stadiums are putting these things in place. So it's a challenge, but it is that is exactly how I see it. I've, I've been probably to the Aviva last February, uh, been to the Tottenham Stadium several times to experience the various different types of new hospitality they do there because yeah. that's where they're ahead of, ahead of everybody else at the moment. Mm-hmm. I've been to look at their fan fan park, their fan area and their microbrewery and all these types of areas. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that we need to take mm-hmm. on board, you know, cashless. But as I said, there was so much we had to do to sort out. Like the, the various systems were really falling in on themselves things like the entrance system into the ground the you know the ticketing system i know that a lot of people aren't all that happy with the ticket master system if we persisted with our old system it was going to collapse any moment and there was no way of us patching it up at that point because the supplier was no longer the same system so it was yeah. it was nothing we could have done about it so there's a whole load of different areas where effectively during the last 2 or 3 years of the previous regime everything had stopped functioning in a in the first place, a desperate attempt to stay in the Premier League, um, despite the fact that the, the, the then owner had slightly lost interest. And secondly, once in the Championship, you know it was all hands to the pump just to try and keep the entire ship afloat w- with the owner at that point having definitely lost interest. So there was quite a few. Num- there was a quite a number of years where these things hadn't been addressed in a, even in a tactical way, let alone in a strategic strategic way. So the last year has been about propping up the stuff that had to be propped up and had to be done yeah. properly and quickly. The next year is going to be about, as you said, taking things up so that we're up towards the forefront rather than being falling behind would, every year. Would that then involve sort of local companies? I know we'll go down a bit of a tangent here. The buy the river stuff, the shipping containers, which take up minimal space but optimise your, your audience. Is there, a, is there a view maybe to sort of contacting the local companies who do these kind of things to maybe see if we can get one that's specific for the club to generate help well, generate that fan experience? Is, if you're talking about a microbrewery, that there are numerous local microbreweries and I've spoken yeah. to a couple of them. Uh-huh. So yes, there. Um, when it comes to technology, um, that tends to be national technology, but I spoke to one the other day on the media side that was a local technology that would be really yeah. helpful for us. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a mix and match. Um, but I'll always certainly encourage anyone who does have things that they think would be of interest to come forward yeah. um, mm-hmm. and to um, make suggestions because some people who have done that, it's, it's been you know it's been hugely helpful and we've taken yeah. those things up. I just think there's the sort of things which could be somewhat unique to the club. Obviously, the club has a, a history with a, with the river, the shipbuilding stuff. So getting that shipping container kind well, of thing I, is I think that, I think that goes into a broader conversation about the future development of sheepfolds. And that is a really interesting topic that I'm discussing actively with the council at the moment. Yeah. That's the, the space effectively between the, the club and the river. Um, and that's going to be uh, a big strategic issue for the city going forward. And, and yeah. as a club, we want to make sure that 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 development's done in such a way that works for the club. Yeah. So we've got 20 minutes, so we'll move on to current affairs. So I think the first thing I would want to ask, and there's a few people asked about it, straightforward question, Phil Parkinson, what made him the right man? So I think you have to sort of revert to the way in which most organisations do recruitment processes, Yeah. right? Which is you decide what the job is, you set up what you think the metrics are of the kind of qualities, competences and CV that you think would fit that role. You then advertise the fact that that role is open and you wait to see who's applied. And in some cases, you reach out to people who you think should apply, right? That's how you fill most roles in most organizations, Mm -hmm. if we're being honest about it. And that's 
exactly what we did. It's, it's, uh, I sometimes think that running football clubs is a lot more prosaic than a lot of fans would, would like to believe. They'd like to believe that there's some, you know, sprinkling of stardust that just alchemizes, alchemists, that sort of thing, just magic out of thin air and um, maestros are waving magic wands around. But actually, it's about structure and processes and, and competence fundamentally. So as a board, we looked at the competition that we're in. And the competition that we're in is League One of the EFL. And we felt that having decided to change managers in season, that it was important that whoever came in understood intrinsically what this competition is all about. Because this is the competition that we're in. And until we're out of it, we're still in it. And we need right now a manager who understands this league and how different managers and different pitches and different players in this league are going to interact with, our, with, what, with what we've got. Secondly, of course, you've got the recruitment market. This is a particular pool of players and it's helpful to have somebody who understands that pool of players very well. So we went out there looking for a manager who had either been successful in this league or very close to it. And really, we it's not that we were sort of totally ruling out people who hadn't been very successful in League One, but we were looking for managers who'd proven they would be successful in League One. And of course, Phil Parkinson's been successful in League One on a serial basis with, you know, with three different clubs which, you know, if it happens once, it can be a, a fluke. If it happens twice, probably not. If it happens three times, highly unlikely. That means that person knows what's required to do that particular job. But there were probably three or four other candidates who fitted that particular bill. They were interviewed. Extensive references were taken on all the candidates. On, on Phil alone, I probably spoke to around seven people who'd worked with him in, in his career in different guises. The references were absolutely outstanding. I've never seen such a consistent set of references about about somebody in the game. And that, combined with the interview that he did, is what persuaded the board that he was the right person for the job. And it really is as prosaic and as simple as that. And funny enough, when the club was last in this division, they didn't reach for a former star striker. They didn't reach for somebody who had once managed in Serie A. They selected Dennis Smith. And Dennis Smith came in and did an outstandingly good job. And probably at the time, Sunderland fans said, well, who, who, else, who else Dennis Smith? You know, we, we want Laurie McMenemy. Oh, whoops, sorry, we just had him just a moment ago. Um, but Dennis came in and did a great job. Um, and that's because he himself knew that league, had managed that level of player and been successful at it and went on to prove at Sunderland and then at other clubs, including Oxford, you know, West Stewart and I have been fans, that that was something that he was really, really good at, was getting teams promoted from the third tier to the second tier. And that was obviously our belief in appointing Phil Parkinson to this job. You mentioned there about Phil's record at the third tier going into the second tier. You know, I think the argument speaks for itself. He has got a good record at this point. It is the question, though, if we end up in the second tier, did his record at the second tier to elevate the team, maybe not into the Premier League, but to be a comfortable mid-table championship side, to give yourself the platform to build, to go up to the top tier? First of all, um, I'm just going to hedge this answer by saying I'm not in charge of the football side of this club. And whilst I have a say and a word, ultimately there are professional football people at our club who take a strong view on football matters, Mm -hmm. right? Secondly, we are in League One. We're not in the championship. We are in League One. And there's no point in appointing somebody in League One because you think they're going to do a job in the championship. You've got to get to the championship, right? That's the second thing I'd say. Third thing I'd say just as a punter, not as a professional football person, this isn't even something I've even discussed with him, is if you show me the manager who can make Colchester United safe in the championship, 
I'll show you a pretty special manager. I mean, Colchester are a League Two club, really. For them to be in the mm-hmm. Championship at all is phenomenal. If you show me a manager who could have taken Bolton in their financial state under a two-year transfer embargo and make them safe in the Championship, I think it's a miracle that Phil kept them in the Championship, frankly. That was the year that Sunderland finished bottom of the whole division mm-hmm. and Bolton were under a two-year transfer embargo, spending almost no money on players at all and they stayed in the Championship at Sunderland's expense. So I think you have to look at the context. I mean, even as a punter, I just I, it, it would be a little bit unfair to say, well, you know, clearly Neil Warnock's a hopeless manager because he didn't get he didn't manage to get Cardiff City into Champions League places. That means he must be really rubbish at managing, yeah. right? There has to be a bit of context involved, but ultimately it was about the recruitment process. It was a process that was very thoroughly run, and when it came to the end of it, somewhat unusually, it was a unanimous view and uh, one that we're very confident in and comfortable with and that's the way it is another person obviously people have been speaking about is Stuart himself and obviously I don't want you to speak on behalf of Stuart but I suppose the question that many people have posed is well there's been a few people have posed that really he's decided to step out of the limelight uh, he's come off Twitter he, he hasn't done any podcasts or, or spoke too too frequently compared to what he had done last year why does he feel unable to attend games will he return back if you think and watch the team play and just how bad was the abuse that he suffered Look, it's, it's, this discussion is about the academy and what's happening at the club. Stuart, I think, is absolutely integral to the running of this club. I've spoken to Stuart three times today, um, and that's just a normal day on, on the running of the club. He is absolutely integrally involved as chairman. He is very much the chairman. And I think that the extent to which he is physically present at games or on podcasts, whatever, I think you just have to reflect on the sheer number of chairmen who are nowhere near as involved as he is in the club. You know, as an ownership group, he and I are very, very heavily involved. And ultimately, it's up to him as to how much personal interaction he wants to have with people. Um, And it doesn't really affect his role in running the club. You know, um, he, he, he is still very, very heavily involved in that. But he wouldn't be the first human being ever to decide that if engaging in personal interactions means unpleasant personal interactions then he'd rather not have unpleasant personal interactions because do you know what most of us you know Stuart and I are both in our middle age we've both got children busy lives parents to look after etc life is challenging enough mm-hmm. without dealing with unpleasantness in your day-to-day life and I don't mean questioning questioning you get every single day Stuart and I get that in our normal businesses we get that from our children we get that from friends Questioning is absolutely fine. Unpleasantness is a, is a very different thing. And not many people, unless they absolutely have to, willingly sign up to it on a day-to-day basis. It just, as you go to bed in the evening, it doesn't exactly sort of make your life feel like it's great. So he's heavily involved in running the club. Just right now, he is minimising his personal interactions to enable him to get on with the rest of his life in a happy frame of mind. Yeah. Two, two things there. Firstly, I totally agree with what you see in there. Then first and foremost, football should be about enjoyment, whether that's the playing level, the fan level, or enjoying running the football club. Is You have to enjoy what you're doing. The moment you don't enjoy what you're doing, it's pointless doing it because you're not going to put everything into it. Yeah. Secondly, with Stuart stepping back somewhat, one is a huge hit with the fans. I remember him climbing all over the statues down in London and all that kind of stuff. Crowd surfing. With Stuart stepping back, does that give one the potential to step forward and maybe fill some of the void, being such a popular kind of character with the fans? Is that something well, I, I, that I, we could do? I, I think 
Juan is going to be around quite a bit more now that he's been elected as a senator in Uruguay. That election requires him to be in Uruguay for two or three weeks every couple of months. Yeah. Um, the rest of the time, he's going to be UK-based and he'll be at Sunderland a lot more, in Sunderland more as a result than he has been in the last six months to a year. But ultimately, it'll be the same thing, which is if he is popular right now, if he's the one who then gets pushed forward, then probably he will be the one who faces personal unpleasantness mm-hmm. and he'll probably then decide it's not something he particularly enjoys. Yeah. This isn't new. The same thing happened to Ellis Short. The same thing happened to Bob Murray. The same thing happened to Tom Cowie, etc. It's it's an unfortunate trend, which, and I just, you said something earlier on, which just struck such a chord, right? Football is meant to be fun. And it's meant to be something that actually takes us out of our normal humdrum existences and enables us to actually have more fun in life. And we can amiably disagree on all sorts of things. What Paul and I have said about running the academy, do you know what? I think everything that Paul said is absolutely valid. But doubtless there'll be other people who run academies who have given different answers and you can have a genuine dispute and amiable debate about that. Likewise, what I said about the stadium, there'll be other people with different views. You could do this, you could do that. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? And that is all fun. That is the kind of stuff that as you know, people in our teens and our early 20s, we go to the pub and we talk about. It's when it crosses the boundary from having that debate into it being an aggressive personal attack mm. that it's no longer fun. It's not fun for the person on the receiving end. And frankly, unless the person involved is very, very sick, it shouldn't really be very pleasurable for the person who's actually giving the abuse out mm, either. Yeah. So I think, you know, yes, Juan will be here more often. I just hope that both in his case and in Stuart's case, uh, physical presence and proximity doesn't necessarily have to equate to unpleasantness. Yeah. Because, you know, honestly, life's too short. You know, um, it, football is a challenge. It's it, it is fun. It's um, ferociously competitive environment, and ultimately, it's some something which you want to sort of all be bonded together, facing in the same direction. Not many armies are successful when in the trenches they're fighting amongst amongst each other. So yeah, Juan will be Juan and will be around a bit more for sure, um, but Stuart is still very much running the club. There was a, a chat me and Tom were having sort of off air before and just kind of on the line with that as well. And I mean, I'm just generally curious. Sometimes you see it from a different viewpoint to maybe what you see it. But there was a South End fan was on online on Twitter and he said yes. something along of how much of a good weekend he'd had and how great the fans of Sunderland were and how brilliant they were. But then at the end, he put, they're not what they come across like online or they're not what they said yeah. online. Yeah. Uh-huh. And my, my concern sometimes with Stuart stepping back and the, the conversations that sometimes that, you know, even we have about like the abuse that oh, yeah. anyone gets and sort of thing. Do you sometimes worry that the step back and the complete silence and the talk about the abuse almost not demonizes Sunderland fans, but paints them in a light that we're just not because we are vigorously passionate and trust me, mm. I've seen some of the stuff that you can get. I think we, yeah. we've all had an element of it, but like we are such a good fan base to yeah, be part I, of. I would see it is is probably 99% positive and 1% negative, but the problem is the negative vices always seem to reverberate the loudest. So that's a concern, but it it has been a concern for me and Graham is is the outside perception of the football club is something which is very important. You see teams like Millwall who have quite a negative perception surrounding their club, but then you see clubs like Leicester, Everton, Wolves who have a generally positive perception about them. So it's just kind of... It it affects recruitment sometimes as well. Well, I mean, Uh it doesn't just affect that. It affects whether you can attract new investors. And I think it just asks the question to those people who step the line over into unpleasantness and ask them... If you do want somebody new to come and buy the club, 
Do you think that they will be attracted by the thought of being spoken to and written about in this way? I ask the question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does this mean that 98% of Sundom fans aren't absolutely fantastic? No, they are. And some of the stuff that has we've found up here in the Northeast has just been absolutely tremendous. I yeah. mean, the, some of the spirit, the openness, the just hospitable nature of people, the, the helpfulness uh, has just been absolutely tremendous. There's so much that is to be celebrated and which you would love the club to be known for that. Um, sometimes even the very, very decent and the, and, and the humble and, and the wonderful fans tend to excuse the people who are abusive. Oh, well, you need to understand it's been very difficult. It's been a bit harsh. You, know, you need to understand that the reason why that person's being abusive is whatever it might be. And ultimately, like all cases of, of abuse, that there is no you need to understand about it at all. If you can't, if you can't ask your question politely and courteously, then, kind of then there is no excuse for you. There yeah. is no excuse whatsoever. And that, that, that I think, is, is really what you're saying, which is that this small number of people are doing a disservice to their fellow fans. Yeah, I just feel collectively um, sometimes yeah. we can... I, I just do sometimes worry that, like, for example... Stuart stepping back was really divisive. Yeah. You had people who were like really, really like understood it. You had people that questioned it. And then you had people that would like probably the people that drove him yeah. off. And I, I worry sometimes the, that it breaks the fan base up yeah. too much. Well, well yeah. what, look, I, I totally get that. But just pretending that it's all fine and that this is acceptable is is no answer anyway. That's burying your head in in the sand. Mm-hmm. That's, that's brushing things under the carpet, whatever metaphor you what you, you want to use. So in a very quiet, dignified way, without saying anything publicly, Stuart's just asked people, I think, to reflect a little bit on their behaviour and whether this is actually what they want to happen at their football club. Where successive mm-hmm. chairmen, not one, successive chairmen feel that they cannot attend games. Yeah. And that's not a question asked at 98% of fans. That's a question asked at 2%. What's quite interesting is that that 2% are always the one who then jump up and down saying they're attacking all the fans. And of course they're not. It's attacking 2%, many of whom, if you actually look at it, don't attend matches. And this is the other great unspoken secret, which we all know really, is a lot of the keyboard warriors aren't actually the season ticket holders. There's someone on Twitter as well, just just whilst we're on it as well, and um, M. Jacko in 1989, he says, why have you cut back on the PR with regards to ticket sales? He feels there's been no fan engagement since Boxing Day in Plymouth at home, really. Well, this is a fascinating one, because every time I come out and do some PR a whole bunch of um, people associated with Sunderland say, oh, it's all just PR spin. He needs to just shut up and, and, let, <laughs> and let the football on the pitch do the talking. And every time that I don't say anything it for a month, like that, yeah. pe- pe- people say, oh, what's he doing? He's not doing anything, et cetera, et cetera. So th- this is definitely one where, you know, you, you have to take your own path and, and accept that there will always be people who disagree with the path that you're taking. In the first two months of this season, I totally disagree with him in the second half of last season. The second half of last season, we were very present. In the first two or three months of this season, we were in very detailed negotiations with an external financial entity. Yeah. And every time that I would have put my head above the parapet, the only thing that anyone would have wanted to know about was that. And all I could have said yeah. was, I can't tell you. And it would have been an absolutely mm-hmm. hopeless, paralyzing conversation. It would, have just, it would have actually annoyed people more than just not saying anything at all. So I just took the view, we're going to just ride back here. Let's complete this deal. Then once we can talk about the deal, let's get back out and start talking about things again. In terms of the crowds, do you know what? The crowds have been fantastic in terms of n- numbers. 
um, and it, it, we're averaging over 30,000 in the Fantastic. second year in League One. And we, there haven't been many big away crowds, by the way. That's pretty much 30,000 yeah. Sunderland fans yeah. on average at every single match. If you keep on just saying the same thing time after time after time after time, people eventually say, well, yeah, we, we heard you first time, mate. I mean, have you noticed we are coming? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, you don't need to keep on telling us when we are actually here. You've got 30, you know, give an example. When we took over the previous season, there'd been 21,000 season ticket holders. When we turned up, we were told to expect 16,000. Then went on a big PR campaign and marketing campaign, and we ended up getting 23,000 last year, which was absolutely fantastic. I don't know if you remember that whole, yeah. the yeah, excitement yeah, around that whole campaign. Yeah, yeah. 23,000 season tickets in, in League One, isn't that a phenomenal achievement? Um, this season, we are at 24,500. Um, so it's amazing, really. It's fantastic, um, and it's a great tribute to the Sunderland fans. I will say it's also a tribute to the Sunderland media and marketing team, which is really operating very cleverly and very smartly and targeting people in a very respectful and decent way. And it doesn't need me then to be out in front with my trumpet all the time, because actually, we've the fan base and our media marketing team are back on track. It's a lot of yeah. praise for Connor, that mind. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just Not quick, sure I'd agree. Yeah, just <laughs> quickly on that is we, we brought up the Boxing Day. Uh, the fan donations for the tickets for those who are yep. less fortunate. Yep. Are we going to the gift are, of football? Yes, are we going to back that again this year and uh, maybe absolutely. look to just continue rolling uh, yeah, that? Absolutely, that was fantastic. and I think we'll be launching that very soon. And there'll be a series of events around that, um, and I think we're going to link it to you know a number of other things that are going to be happening in the city. I think it's yeah. going to be really great. I looked at our winter marketing campaign the other day. It was presented to me by um, our, our head of media, who, who's, who's great. And I just looked at it. And one of the first times in my career as a media and marketing boss, I just looked at this lengthy plan and I said, that's brilliant. I'm not even going to change a single yeah. thing. That is absolutely spot on. Mm -hmm. So in, in some ways, the less you hear of me, the better, because it actually means that the rest of the club and the fan base and the Red and White Army and all the other constituents are actually operating in the right way. Shouldn't need me out yeah. front banging my drum all the time. We will do a bit for Boxing Day um, yeah. because I think Boxing Day is a great day for an entire fan base and a city to come together. You've got a lot of people who have left the city who come back and see their family. So I think that is a good day to actually get a bit of... Um, a bit of publicity going just to remind people who might not always come that there is a game that day yeah. and to remind them early enough that they actually then make the right arrangements to make sure that they're free on Boxing Day. They haven't arranged to go and see their aunt and uncle, whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah. So we'll do a bit around that. But generally speaking, um, we had a very detailed investment process to go through on the one hand. And on the other hand, been working behind the scenes with the media and marketing team, making sure that actually they're communicating with the fan base in the right way to encourage everyone to as much as possible come to games, which, you know, given that the football's been pretty so-so, it's been a fantastic attendance and I'm really grateful yeah. for it. So I suppose just to sort of finish off, there's so much stuff we could ask and I'm so sorry if we didn't get through the question we wanted you to ask. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, you know, we will at another point, but, um, and I don't, I don't want to end on a negative. It might sound a negative question. Hopefully it'll end on a positive. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm like. Um, it's the way I am. Um, I'll turn it into a positive for you. Well, that, you know, that yes. Well, you're the expert at it. I'll get, so. get Reedy to do it because <laughs> he can't be accused of just saying it for PR purposes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, and, and I, I'm going to speak from my perspective here, and I think maybe people would agree with me, but I'm, I'm really worried about the way the team's performed this season, naturally. Um, but I'm also very realistic in the fact that we have a new manager in who, yet yeah, on paper, not the best of starts, but there's a long way to go yet. But maybe away from your job as a football club, as a fan, how have you found the season's gone this far and what are the, what are the positives that you've seen from the new manager that makes you confident 
that we're not going to be as worried as I am maybe at the moment moving forward. Well, first of all, um, clearly as a board, we would not have taken the decision to change the manager if we had been entirely happy with the way the season was going, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. So I think we were seeing the same football that you were seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question that we had to ask ourselves was, if this continues, and there is no reason to believe that it won't because you know the manager had been there a year and a half, he'd signed mm-hmm. 20, 20, 25 players, um, had had two full pre-seasons, etc., if this continues, do we believe that this team, the way it's progressing now, is going to get promoted? And on balance, we decided that we thought probably not. Could happen, but probably not. And since our ambition is to get promoted, we need to make a change. Now, the manager then comes in at a, at a you know unideal time of year yeah. um, because you want a manager to have a pre-season. I know Paul can speak to this, perhaps as a football professional more, you know, the, the benefits of having that time on the training field. Yeah, so the, the key time where you get and implement your ideas and get and get your, the team basically being a mirror image of what you want. That is the time because once you start the season, you've also got games, Saturday, Tuesday, it's difficult to get your message across. You are literally just playing, recovering, playing, recovering. So that pre-season time really is key. So I think, you know, in the first three weeks that Phil's been here, we've played Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. So as Reedy says, Play, recover, play, recover, play, recover. Um, and there's, in terms of what I would call a proper full-on training session, when you, you you have a couple of days when you've got, right, let's work on our attacking shape, let's work on defensive set, all that kind of stuff is really, really difficult to do at the, those moments. So I think we've got some weeks coming up when we've got fewer matches. Obviously, the Bristol Rovers game has been postponed. The Berry game obviously won't happen. Um, So there are a couple of times in the next month or two when there are two weeks, effectively, without really a game at all. Um, And I think that the manager will probably welcome that as an opportunity to get to work with with doing what he wants to do in terms of what Paul says, getting his ideas across about how he wants them to, to be. But obviously there'll be discussions between the manager and the recruitment team as well about what activity there might be in January. So I'm hoping, as a fan, as a punter, I'm hoping to continue to see the uplift in attacking intent and gradually to watch the refinements as they come in. I will note that in the four league games since the manager came in, um, we've conceded two goals um, and that's a, a definitely a step in the right direction. Um, touch wood. Two clean sheets. Um, two clean sheets out of four and the other two games were conceding one. You know, yeah. conceding one. Um, and I think most of us can see, just as a mug punter, I can see um, in... Willis and Lynch, a centre-back partnership coming together that, that, that complements mm-hmm. each other well. Definitely. So there are lots of different bits to the, the the team. You know, like in any sport, it's not just sort of one person or sort of four people. It's eleven people and partnerships all around the pitch. I can see progress, and with the upcoming weeks when there's time on the training pitch, hopefully with some of the players who have been out for injury, you know, Gucci and and Charlie White, and hopefully ultimately Elliot, although that that is a longer term one that. We'll see a bit of squad strengthening going on organically first in the transfer market second that will then take us on to the next level. Because let's be clear, you know, we're not far off. If you look at the two teams who are top of the table, Ipswich and Wickham, you know, we drew away at Ipswich and got very narrowly beaten at, at, at Wickham. So we played those two teams away from home. We've got them both to play back at home. We're not far off. You know, my hometown team, Oxford, has been the form team in the division for the last month, two months. And in the cup game, he played 
them 10 days ago you know that they're my friends there the directors there were saying you know you, you made us look pretty average actually yeah. um we look like an average for the first time in two months we look like an average league one team when we've been blowing teams away but we certainly weren't blowing you lot away you look really solid so i think there are definitely sort of green shoots of recovery and i'm cautiously optimistic that as punters we will see those shoots start to grow into something more obvious and noticeable in the coming weeks charlie paul thanks very much Thank you. Thank you, Ren. Thanks. And Tom, thank you as well for chipping in. No worries. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.